Good morning once again. Will you turn in your Bibles with me please to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 is a busy chapter. It's a packed chapter. There are major things that we read about there. We have the beheading of John the Baptist a few weeks ago. We have uh, the feeding of the thousands that we went over last week. This week we worked through Jesus and Peter walking on water. And there are all these major things that continue to point us to who Jesus is. And really that is all that these things do. Everything that Matthew is structuring into this narrative drives us back to the point of figuring out who this Jesus is. And last week, as we looked at that very familiar passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women plus children, uh, we saw Jesus in a couple of different lights. First of all, he was presented as the Good Shepherd. Uh, He has been through a busy period of ministry with the Uh, the promise of rejection and the conflict with scribes and Pharisees. Uh, The disciples have been through a busy period of ministry. They've been sent out to do that initial work of kingdom uh, preaching. They've come back and made a remarkable report to Christ. And uh, rest really seems to be the order of the day, but there is no rest to be found. As immediately they come to shore and they're approached by uh, thousands of people. And Jesus, the good shepherd, looks on the people and he feels compassion. His own needs set aside. He sees the people as those without a shepherd. Those things that God had built in to the lives and the structure of his people. Uh, The idea that they were supposed to have kings to guard and to guide them, to lead them in obedience. The idea that they were supposed to have priests and Levites who were righteous men who were leading them toward an obedient walk with God and all the blessings that were to come to that. All of those things were really stripped away from the people. They were ruled over by petty tyrants. Uh, The priesthood was corrupt at best. The Pharisees had made uh, following the law a burden rather than a joy, something that they could check off boxes toward their own righteousness rather than a joyful, heartfelt obedience to God. And so these people really are lost. And Jesus, knowing even how fickle they are, comes to them and he feels compassion on them. And he meets their need. He heals their sick. And even more than that, he teaches them about the coming kingdom. So he meets the physical need, but he does that even more so by pointing out the spiritual need, by telling them how they are to come into this kingdom. But there's another need that's going to become very apparent very quickly, and that is as the end of the day approaches, uh, many thousands of people are going to get hungry all at once. And the disciples recognize the need, and they also recognize that they're powerless to meet the need. If we had 200 days worth of wages, we couldn't buy food for this crowd. And as we've gone through, all that we found is five loaves and two fish. There is nothing that we can do to meet the need. And their best suggestion to Jesus is just send them away. Let them fend for themselves. And Jesus responds pointedly, no, they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. And into that impossible situation, Jesus takes what was there and he makes the little much through his miraculous power. He thanks God for what was provided and then he gives to the disciples who gives to the crowd and almost silently this miracle of multiplication happens and the people eat until they're satisfied. And not only are they completely satisfied, but there are 12 baskets left over, a very pointed object lesson for each of those disciples who wondered whether they would be able to feed this crowd or how that would even happen now holding a basket full of leftovers, as it were, and much more important than meeting the physical need is the idea that Jesus is, in fact, the bread of life. All of these people would be hungry again the next day. John's Gospel says that explicitly. They come to him looking for the same kind of miracle. And that's when Jesus points out that this is about more than just bread. This is about more than pointing back to Moses where manna came down from heaven. This is about satisfying a hunger that is an eternal hunger, a hunger that people have to be restored to the God that they were created with. And now that only happens through who Jesus is and what he does. And uh, the big question would then be, after that kind of a high point, 
uh, after 20,000 potential people are fed, what happens next? Where do you go from that kind of a, a mountaintop experience, as it were? And that's what we see today. And it's really a narrative that highlights both faith and fear. If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. We'll finish the chapter today, but I want to read just a bit of it to set the stage where we're going. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. This is what God's Word says. Immediately, He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowds. And after He had dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. When evening came, He was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we have a familiar story, a scene that many of us are familiar with, whether it's from uh, our time in church or a movie that we saw or some coloring page that we've done uh, it's a scene that we can somewhat get our minds around. Lord, I pray that uh, the familiar doesn't become ordinary. I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that we would see clearly who this Jesus is and then that we would respond rightly. Lord, this passage is ultimately about worship. So make us a people who worship well in spirit and in truth. And we recognize that we need your help to do that. It's not something that we can grasp on our own. So we need your help today, and we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we've said before, one of the problems with these gospel accounts, it's not a problem in the gospel account, really, it's a problem for us, is that these things become very, very ordinary, very familiar. Uh, these are the common stories, especially as we come to places like this in the gospel. The gospel's being familiar enough. These are the most familiar of the most familiar uh, and they become so familiar that it becomes hard for us to rightly understand them. Not that we don't understand the words, but they don't shock us like they ought to. They don't drive us to the understandings that they ought to. We're separated by time and by culture, and we're saturated uh, by familiarity. And so we just kind of read these things, and we move through with it. I know that already. We have to remember that we are reading these things uh, some 2,000 years later with the benefit not only of a completed canon, but with that familiarity that we have. We need to be reminded that the crowds, as they go through this, that the disciples, as they view these things, are witnessing them for the first time. This is unfolding before their eyes. And if we understand that, it helps us remember and maybe understand why they react the way that they do, why the expectations are what they are, because this is certainly a familiar passage, but this is a critical passage. As Jesus walks on the water, as the disciples come to the conclusions that they come to, this is a very important piece in Matthew's narrative. And it's one with a kind of a complicated backstory and a complicated response even that we want to make sure that we understand. So as we move into today, there's going to be really three pieces to this narrative. We're going to look at the setting, then we'll look at the storm, and then we'll look at the summary that closes the chapter. But let's open this up by looking at the setting, and we do that in verse 22, and it starts off with immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Now right away we're met with a problem that we don't recognize as a problem most of the time. If we were to open this up and read this passage, 22 through the end of the chapter, and if I were to ask you where are the problems here, uh, most of us would probably say, well, there's a windstorm and that's a problem. And 
yeah, it kind of is. And uh, most of us would point to the fact that eventually Peter starts sinking. We know that much about it. We'd say, uh, that's the problem. And yeah, that's going to be a problem, more or less. But behind the scenes here, there's another problem developing with some significant roots that we touched on last week. But we need to understand it because it makes sense of this transition. Why would Jesus immediately make the disciples get into the boat? Well, if you remember last week, when John gives his uh, accounting of the feeding of the 5,000, when, when John tells us that in his gospel, he points to the fact that the people are not only amazed, but they want to make Jesus king. John says that the people were willing to take him by force if necessary and make him their king. And it makes sense. The people knew that this wasn't the way things were supposed to be. Herod, that petty tyrant, had beheaded John the Baptist and really ruled over them as kind of this illegitimate ruler. And Rome was no better. Rome was uh, many, many, many miles away. And that was a pagan foreign power that exercised influence over their daily lives. And they couldn't stand that. But here, what do we have? We have Jesus, and he's one of them. He's a Jew. He, not only is he a Jew, this is a man that can teach with authority. Not only can he teach with authority, but he can heal people. And now not only can he heal people, but it appears that he has the ability to make sure that they never go hungry again. Now that is quite the political campaign platform. Can you imagine if a political party in the U.S. said, vote for us and you will not know sickness or hunger any longer? You won't have need anymore. By the way, politicians still try to appeal to that. Come to me, I'll meet all your needs. This crowd in Jesus sees one who can meet all of their needs. And they have determined that not only uh, does he have the ability to rule, but that he must be ruling. And they're willing to make that happen by force if necessary. Now, think about this from the level of the disciples. And how does that sound to you? That's got to sound pretty good. Because this is a guy that they have left everything for. Some of the disciples left the best catch of their life. If you read through Luke 5. One of the disciples left a very lucrative tax business there in Capernaum. We don't know what it cost them to leave their friends, their families, but these are men who had given up everything to follow after Jesus. They know that he's different. They don't know everything. They certainly don't have a detailed uh, Christology developed. But they know that this one is different, that he is special, that he is uh, empowered by God, and that he ought to be running things. And now it seems like you've got 20,000 plus or minus people who agree with you. And if I'm a disciple, that's a really good starting point to a really good day. Jesus, let's make this happen. And I think Jesus understands the limits of their perception. And I think Jesus, in his kindness, immediately commands them to leave for their good. Because everything in them, if I'm them, everything in me would want to stay there. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And as Jesus dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So now the disciples have been dismissed for their good. And now Jesus goes to spend time with the Father for his good. And I don't know, do you ever ask yourself, why does Jesus pray? I mean, if he's God, and he is, If he never ceased to be one with the Father, and he didn't, why does Jesus pray? Well, for one thing, he desires that fellowship with the Father. You think back to eternity past, before the earth was formed, before Adam took his first breath, and you have Jesus 
existing in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. Uh, we go toward the end of Jesus' ministry, and in that upper room on the night uh, that he was betrayed, just before the cross, he's praying, and he prays that high priestly prayer. And in, in John seventeen five, he says things like, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In John seventeen twenty one, you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, and I pray that they also may be, may be one in us. Verse 22, he prays so that they may be one even as we are one. There's this union with the Father that Christ experiences and that he continues to experience. And so uh, communion and union with the Father is something that is just natural to him. And also, if we look through the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus prays when there is a need. Uh, Before that miracle, he prays, thanks God for what was provided, and then he breaks the bread. We see Jesus pray when there's temptation. As we go to the end once again, and we're familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, we have that picture of Christ praying by himself deep in the garden, knowing exactly what the Father has set before him and praying, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in our minds, I think, we think of the temptation of Jesus as kind of this bookends to his ministry. He's tempted in the beginning in Matthew chapter 4. We saw that in the wilderness. He's tempted in the end in the garden right before the cross. And we think, well, maybe that's it. And everything else in between was just Jesus doing what Jesus does. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. Now, when we think of temptation, when you and I are tempted, we know temptation, but only to the degree uh, that we experience it before we give in. In other words, I know temptation this far, and that's about as far as I can go before I fall to that temptation. Jesus knew temptation and he knew it to the highest degree because he never gave in because he was completely without sin and I think we have to understand that that temptation was a constant presence and attack a couple chapters later than where we are now in chapter 16 Peter makes that declaration you're the Christ the son of the living God and at that point for the first time Jesus explicitly says that he is going to die he certainly hinted at it by saying uh, you have to take up your cross and follow me that you'll be rejected as I am And what's Peter's response? No, by no means. This is not happening to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because that is a temptation to circumvent the cross. Now, what do we have here? We have a significant crowd that is willing to make him king without the cross. And once again, there's temptation. Not the sin, as he certainly doesn't move into it but the temptation to take the authority that is his by divine right, his by virtue of his being and his nature. And yet he will not take that outside of the will and the plan of the Father. And so as he is tempted, he moves to a place of solitude to pray. And we come to the end of Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. We have Jesus here alone and we have the disciples in a boat very much alone. And so we move from the setting and now we can move toward the storm. Uh, A great thing has happened. A high point in ministry has happened. Uh, Certainly a high point from the perspective of the disciples. Uh, But we're going to move from a place of victory almost immediately to a place of danger and how familiar that is in many of our lives. And, And as we look at this storm, the bulk, the middle part of this narrative today, we see this kind of fascinating back and forth between fear and faith and fear and faith. So let's trace that path in the storm. First, we see fear in verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
Now you need to understand that at this point, the boat is absolutely nowhere near where it should be. They had been ministering on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and he had sent them across to the other side, to the area near Capernaum. Now, if they had been in a straight line, they would have kind of cut across the top corner of the Sea of Galilee. John's Gospel tells us that they are, in fact, miles from the shore. In other words, uh, they are really farther from the goal now than when they got in the boat in the first place. Uh, What was a lovely afternoon on that hillside where people were fed has turned into a violent and stormy night. And that boat that's being uh, beaten and pushed by the waves is farther away from the destination than when they started. And you need to understand, not only are they nowhere near where they're supposed to be, but they have been at this for a long time. Verse 25 says, in the fourth watch of the night, and we don't really have watches in the night. We are not a military society. Rome was. Uh, Roman uh, provinces thought of time kind of in the way that the Roman army did. It just made sense. That's how their lives were structured. And between uh, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., you would have your night watches. And every three hours, the guard would change. So you stand guard for three hours, and then the next watch would take over, and the next watch, and the next watch. And so from 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. So we have this fourth watch of the night. We're between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And if you begin to do the math, even if they had a very late dinner, they have been pushing against a hostile sea for hours and hours and hours. And they are exhausted. And they are wet. And it is dark. And this is not a situation that is pleasant in any way. Now we're not told that they're fearful at this point, although we could certainly understand if they would be, but if they weren't afraid yet, they're about to be. Because in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now again, every now and then you get kind of a liberal commentary that says, well, they were in the shallows, so Jesus is kind of just walking along the shoreline. That is absolutely not what is happening here. Like I said, John's Gospel makes it clear. They are miles out to sea. He is walking miraculously on the water toward them. And not only is he walking on the water, he knows exactly where they are. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the waves, in the middle of the wind, he goes directly to where they are. Mark's Gospel says he even saw them from where he was up on the mountain praying. Jesus has not lost track of where his disciples are, even though they're in the middle of the storm. But his approach doesn't bring comfort, it brings great fear. Look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So if they weren't scared in the storm, they are now scared by this uh, specter kind of coming toward them. Again, we need to understand the sea is not naturally a place of peace and comfort for them. Uh, We go to the beach and that's kind of our happy place. We stick our toes in the sand and we look out at the great vast ocean and it's kind of calming. Uh, Culturally, the sea is not seen as a calming place. Uh, They were not a great exploring people. They did not go on distant uh, voyages. Uh, To them and to many ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sea was a place of unknown unrest, darkness and danger. Boats that went out didn't always come back. And they didn't know what was out there, and they couldn't really comprehend the vastness of it, which is why the sea was this unknown danger to them. And you add to that the idea that uh, pagan religions would often mix in like these water spirits that had uh, bad intentions for men. And as they're there in the darkness, in the middle of uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of this storm, uh, the best that they can come up with is this thing walking toward them must be a ghost. But Jesus is going to move to quiet their fears, to move from fear to faith. And although it might not initially be in the way that we would expect. Because look at what he says in verse 27. 
there in the fourth watch of the night. They cry out in terror that it's a ghost. In verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus does not come and immediately still the waves. He does not immediately do anything to change the circumstance. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In other words, the do not be afraid is not based on where they're at or what they're experiencing. The do not be afraid is based on who he is and their knowledge of who he is. There's something really subtle in the way that it's phrased here. It's very similar to the way John phrases those I am statements through his gospel. It points back to Exodus as Moses is before that burning bush and he asks, who should I say that has sent me? And God reveals that I am that I am. The I am has sent me. This is Jesus saying, don't be afraid, I am. Now the disciples in the moment, I can assure you, did not make that connection. But Matthew's readers later would have we can begin to see that in there. And as Jesus reveals himself, Peter speaks up. In verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. A couple of things here. First of all, we tend to read these things backwards. Uh, For us, we read this and we say, well, of course Peter said something. I mean, if anyone's going to say something, it's going to be Peter, right? If anyone's going to do something slightly crazy, it's going to be Peter, right? That's us knowing the end. You have to understand that at this point in Matthew's gospel, this isn't even Peter. This is just Simon. And Simon's just another one of the guys in the boat. Think back through Matthew's gospel. Has he highlighted Peter in any way? Really, he hasn't. One of those first disciples called, but over the next few chapters, Peter begins and only just begins to take a prominent place among the disciples. So we can't read backwards into this. Peter uh, announces, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And we read a great deal of doubt in there. Maybe it would be better for us to read since it's you. That's kind of more accurately the way it's phrased. And Lord, because it's you, command me to come out to you. And we don't have a lot of the backstory there. We're not given a a narrative of his thinking there. Why why was he wanting to do that? Did he want to be part of the miracle? Uh, Did he look at the waves and the boat and the other guys in there and decide that he'd be better off with Jesus than with these other clowns? Um, After all, they hadn't rowed the right direction all night. Uh, We don't know, but we do know that Whatever his motivation, Peter understood that if Jesus was, and if he should command him to come, then Peter would be able to come. Again, we tend to read this and we know what's going to happen. We know that in a minute, Peter's going to start to get wet. And this whole story becomes a story of Peter's great faith failure. Sometimes we forget that it took a lot of faith to get out of the boat in the first place. That among all of those other guys, Peter said, if it's you, then I can do this thing that nobody considers possible and in fact is not possible. It's still dark outside. It's still windy. The waves are still battering that little boat and they are still a long way from shore. There is no backup plan here. Peter simply says, if it's you, then I can do this. Verse 29, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. That faith led to action and that action led to him being able to do something, once again, uh, that is impossible. There's no class for learning how to walk on water. Uh, There's no move your feet like this and you'll get it right eventually. 
Peter's only able to do this because Jesus says, come, and where Jesus calls, he enables an obedient response. And so from a fear to faith, but now we do know that the narrative turns us right back toward fear again because it doesn't last long. Faith moves very quickly toward fear. Look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, a pretty poetic way of saying that he was aware or made more aware of the storm that he was in the middle of. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. It doesn't get much more clear than this. Peter does not immediately look at the storm and go, you know, immediately under the boat. There's a sense where he kind of begins to slowly uh, sink into the water. And I love how Al Mohler puts it. Uh, He says, Peter becomes something of like a human faith dipstick. If you've changed the oil on your car, watched anybody change the oil on your car, you know, you have the long stick. And if you put it in, you know how much oil is in there by how wet the bottom of the stick is. Uh, Peter's kind of the opposite of that. You know how much faith is being replaced by fear by how wet Peter is getting as he's going through this. And so Peter begins to slowly sink. And I don't know how far he got. But what we see is one of the most powerful prayers, I think, in the Bible. Lord, save me. That becomes a picture and a pattern for a faithful response to crisis. Whether it's sinking in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, whether it's being overwhelmed by fear or worry or despair, really what else is there left to cry out other than, Lord, save me? Peter's brought to the point where there's no time to decide whether to swim to Christ or swim to the boat or make a plan and swim to shore. There's nothing left to do other than to say, Lord, save me. Just this crystal clear understanding that without Jesus, this whole thing is over. And in the moment that he cries out, Jesus was there. We don't know how far he walked. We don't know how far away Jesus was when he called him. But in the moment that he says, Lord, save me, what does Matthew say? Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus saves those who cry out to him. This is not an allegory. This is not a story where we have to search for some deeper meaning. Okay, uh, This is real Peter sinking in real water. These are real waves and the threat is of real death. But it's also true that Jesus saves those who cry out to him. And as he reaches down and takes a hold of Peter, he asks a very pointed question. O oh, you of little faith, Why did you doubt? And if I'm responding like I respond, maybe like Peter responded, I might be a little bit put off by that. What do you mean, little faith? The wind, the waves, the darkness, it's all still there. These other guys are still in the boat. I'm wet. How am I the one experiencing or showing little faith? Well, let's try to answer that question. Let's think very clearly. The question is, Peter, why did you doubt? What could he possibly answer that would be satisfactory to that question? What has he seen? Peter has seen a woman be restored to full health after bleeding for 12 years simply because she touched the edge of his cloak. Peter has seen Jesus walk into a mourning house of a dead little girl He's seen her say, get, he has seen Jesus say, get up and watch her eyes open in life. Peter has seen thousands of demons leave a madman and take possession of a herd of pigs and to see that madman's reason restored. 
simply by the word of his power. Peter's been on a boat in the middle of a storm before. And as Jesus sleeps in the back, he, along with the other disciples, cried out, Lord, don't you even care that we're perishing? Peter has seen him still the waves and the wind with a word. What could Peter possibly answer in that moment? If we're thinking clearly, what could Peter possibly answer in that moment that was a satisfactory reason for doubt? There isn't one. It's the problem with storms. It's the problem with darkness. It's the problem with trials. They take our eyes off of the one who stills those storms. They take our eyes off of the one with all the power to actually do something about all of this. They eclipse our view of the one who actually walks on the water. In the life of a disciple, if we understand who Jesus is, then there is no rational answer for why we doubt. As he gets into the boat, we see that cycle flip again from fear to faith, from fear, and then back toward a great statement of faith. Look at verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. We're not told that Jesus said anything. Uh, Essentially, the lesson's over. And so the wind stops. When they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That is the high point of this whole passage. In fact, that's the high point, really, of this whole chapter. That is what it has all been driving to. Uh, It's not Peter getting out of the boat. It's not the storm being stilled in an instant. It's not them uh, being immediately uh, placed where they were supposed to go. It's not the miracles of healing that we're going to see in the last couple of verses that summarize the chapter. This is what it's all been building to. This is the first time, the first time in Matthew's Gospel that human lips have uttered the words, you are the Son of God. You realize that? That is a critical thing. The Father said it at His baptism, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Satan has alluded to it in Matthew chapter 4, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Throughout His ministry, the demons have said it. What do we have to do with you, Son of God? This is the first. And now the disciples call Him the Son of God and who He is. This is another piece in helping us understand who Jesus is because even in this act, Jesus receiving worship, that's only right if He is God, very God. You don't get to worship other things even if they're good things. When John in Revelation encounters an angel and he falls down at his feet, the angel says, what? Don't don't worship me. I'm, I'm a creature just like you. Jesus doesn't correct them because Jesus demands and deserves this worship. We read from the book of Job that God is the one uh, who set the bounds of the waters, but not only do we read that, Job also says that He stretched out the heavens and that He tramples or walks upon the waves of the sea. The book of Psalms uh, repeatedly tells us that God is the one who calms the storms, who settles the waves. And so even in what He does, once again, not only does He receive worship as God, but He does the things that are attributed to God's power. 
He acts with the authority of God. And again, it's very doubtful that the disciples put all this together. We know they don't have this systematic understanding of who he is. They haven't put all the pieces together. And we know that because Matthew's gospel tells us that they worshipped him. But Mark's gospel that gives us the same account says that they're amazed, but that they still don't comprehend what happened with the loaves. In fact, Mark's gospel goes on to tell us that their hearts were hardened, and people struggle with that. How do you put together Matthew's gospel that says that they worshipped, and Mark's gospel that says that their hearts were hardened? Uh, That seems to be a conflict that we can't overcome, until we read through the book of Matthew from front to back, and we see that that's exactly what the disciples are like. A mixture of fear and faith, a mixture of worship and wonder and questions. A mixture of softness and tenderness and hardness of heart, sometimes one right after the other. This is chapter 14. This is not the end of the Gospel. This is not the disciples responding to the risen and resurrected Lord. This is not the disciples after they are filled with the Spirit on that day of Pentecost. This is the disciples very much presented as men in process. And as a result, they're moving forward, but it's not this kind of smooth uh, exponential growth chart of faith that we would see in a mathematic equation. It's this kind of stumbling path with breaks and rises and falls. These are the disciples who have had their first foray into ministry, who have preached about the kingdom and who have healed themselves, and yet who in the very next breath wonder where the food is going to come from. This is the disciples who are terrified of a storm and in the very next breath worship Him as the Son of God. In other words, this is another example of the Gospels telling us the truth. These are not perfected spiritual giants and they are not utter failures. These are those to whom the kingdom has been given and to whom more will be given. In other words, this is exactly what we would expect if what Jesus has said is true. To those who have, more will be given. And the good shepherd is now giving his sheep a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more that tells them about who he is. So we have a storm, not just on the water, but in the lives of the disciples and fear and faith moving back and forth and all of it capped off by that great recognition that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And now that gives way as we close our chapter to this closing summary statement. It's not the first one of these that we've seen. Matthew chapter 4 finishes uh, with a summary of healings. And then we move into this big long teaching section that we know is the Sermon on the Mount in 5 through 7. Matthew chapter 9 closes off with another kind of a broad summary statement of miracles that were happening. And then Jesus transitions into a significant teaching section as he sends the disciples out. Now we have another closing section here, which will give way to a significant section that we'll get to next week. But what does it tell us? What does this summary tell us? Look at verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. So first of all, we now know where they're going. This is the area in and around Capernaum, kind of on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So we know uh, that they're back where a significant part of the ministry has taken place. Not only that, verse 35, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought him all who were sick. So as he is there, not only do the crowds meet him, but now they send around and everybody in all the towns knows where he's at and they are continually bringing more and more people to him. In verse 36, And they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as that touched it were made well. Once again, we're told of a significant number of healings taking place and his power is so great that even touching the edge of his garment is enough to heal. And we've seen that before. 
We've seen that woman who pushed her way through the crowd saying, if only I can get touch enough, uh, close enough to touch the edge of his garment, I'll be made well. And now it seems like that is a regular occurrence, that the crowds are pressing in on Jesus to such a degree uh, that many are just hoping to get close enough to touch him. Which, by the way, becomes the impetus for a conflict that happens next week as you think of mingling and touching the crowds, especially those who are sick. But we'll get to that next week. I don't want to move on too fast because if we just close off chapter 14 with that understanding, uh, the crowds are pressing in. Once again, we might forget that there is a divide that is developed here and a divide that is in fact continuing to get wider and wider. Chapter 10, Jesus says there are going to be those who stumble over me. That there's going to be rejection in your ministry because they ultimately reject me. In 11 and 12, we see that building controversy and that building conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And even the crowds begin to doubt and are beginning to be swayed. In chapter 13, we see that the parables reveal truth to some and they obscure the truth from others. As we come to chapter 14, I want to once again have you turn with me to John chapter 6. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. We referenced it quite a few times because it gives us uh, some detail and some background that's really helpful to think through. I told you last week and earlier in this sermon that John 6 is where we find out that the people wanted to take him and make him king. Last week I told you that John 6 is where Jesus takes uh, that feeding and connects it with the idea that he is the bread of life. That whoever comes to him will not hunger. That whoever believes in him will not thirst. So Jesus presents himself as the satisfaction for real hunger and real thirst. And I want you to turn with me to John 6 and find your way to verse 53. Because the Jews are arguing among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And look at John 6.53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look down to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying Who can listen to it? That is described as disciples. Not the twelve, but those who had followed Christ. Those who had made at least some conscious decision to move where he moved, to go where he goes, to listen to what he says. And now they are struggling with it, and struggling with it to such a degree. Look down to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You need to understand that at this point in Jesus' ministry, as he begins to say hard things, and it is not just feeding, it is not just healing, now Jesus is saying some difficult things. At this point in his ministry, even those who were once identified as his disciples are beginning to turn away, and that is significant. And now Jesus turns to the twelve, and look what he says in 67. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What had they seen the night before Peter says that? That's our narrative. That's him walking on the water. That's Peter sinking and being rowed back into the boat. That's the disciples responding, you are the Son of God. And we see how all of these things are linked together. And so even as Jesus moves into this significant healing ministry, once again, in Galilee, there are those that are actively turning away from him. And there are those who, through no merit of their own, 
are being led and kept and guided by the Good Shepherd. Those that he called to himself are given a little bit clearer understanding, a little bit greater faith, little by little, kind of cemented in their following of him. Passages like this are more than good stories to know. Passages like this remind us of the difficult reality that there are things that are necessary storms. They remind us that we are a people that actually need to be shaken probably more often than we would like to be. So we read about hungry crowds and stormy seas, and it's hard for us to relate because we're so separate from that. We are a people who, if we were to be honest, are not often left hungry. And so we are not forced to continually think through where we get our satisfaction from. We have big, safe ships. We go into dark rooms and turn on lights. And so in our culture and in our context, we're not a people that are afraid very often. And because we're not afraid very often, we are not often forced to wonder where our real security comes from. And then there are times when God, in His kindness and in His providence, brings us to the very end of ourselves. And it might not be physical hunger, but He brings us to the point of understanding that we are not satisfied. That work, relationships, money, that we are left wanting at the end of all of it. And we're forced to realize that He alone satisfies. And it might not be a storm out on the sea, but there are points that we're brought to where we are all afraid. It might be of a loss. It might be of health. It might be of any number of things, but where God in His kindness brings us to the point where we are can only come to the conclusion that He alone keeps us faith, keeps us safe, and that we find our satisfaction in Him. The disciples weren't on that sea because they wandered accidentally into the wrong place. They weren't on the sea because they did what He told them not to. They were in the middle of a dark and stormy sea because they did precisely what He told them to. In other words, Christ in His kindness as the Good Shepherd, Christ in His wisdom and provision as the bread of life, put them in that scenario specifically so that they might understand something more about Himself. And sometimes you and I need to be put in situations where the only thing we can do is get out of the whatever little boat we've been clinging to and get our eyes driven back toward the One who can save us. A few things for us to think about as we go. First of all, If He is, then we have no reason to be afraid. For as long as He says, I am, and that is for eternity, we have no reason to be afraid. Jesus said, don't fear. And it wasn't because the storm wasn't real and it wasn't because the storm had gone away. He said, don't fear, because if He was who He said He was, then fear had no place. We need to be reminded that if He does cause the sun to rise and if He does cause the rain to fall and if He does cause the seasons to change and if He did set bars on the ocean and determine how far that it goes, then there's nothing in creation that is outside of His control. That if He does order our steps and number our days and number our breaths and there's no part of our life that falls to accident or happenstance or randomness, that it is all firmly under His control. And if He has promised to use all of those things for our good, then we in fact have no reason to be afraid no matter what the it is that's out there. Second, why do we doubt? 
That is not the most flattering question, especially when I turn it on me and put myself in there. Matt, why is it that you so often are driven to doubt? Why is it that I move so often and so quickly from faith to fear and back again? This is not an isolated incident in the lives of the disciples. It would not be all that uncommon to see in my life. To move from victory to failure in the same week, the same day, maybe even the same hour. From patience to anger, from trust to worry. How do we overcome that? First of all, by saturating our minds and our hearts with the truth of who he is. By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. By surrounding ourselves with people who will help us do that, who will continually point us back toward truth, who will kindly and gently and graciously embrace us and weep with us in times of weeping, mourn in times of mourning, rejoice in times of rejoicing, but consistently and always through all of those things, gently point us back to the truth that God is unchanging, that he is good and that he is sovereign and that he will do what is best for his people. And by putting continual reminders in our lives because we're a forgetful people and that looks different for everybody. As God proves himself faithful, what do we do to remember that? This week in my life, unexpected, water heater goes out. It's an expense that we can't meet. And in the same day, a plumber who we don't know shows grace for absolutely no reason. And that is a yay God, thank you Lord moment. The question is, what do I do to remember those things so that the next time I'm worried about some financial need or some need or some unforeseen circumstance, I'm driven back to things like that that say that God was faithful and he will be again. We tell the story. We tell it to our kids. We write it down. We make whatever little memorial stones those look like in our lives so that we continually put that before me. And finally, third, uh, Lord save me. A simple prayer, but how often we ought to be reminded that the simple prayers are very effective. Peter does not have to come up with a theological discourse on why Christ should save him. We're reminded in uh, Romans chapter 8 that in crisis and pressure and pain, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us and apparently, uh, Lord save me, although insufficient, to honor God for who he is, to recognize all that he could do in his doing, Lord save me is enough. And beyond that, maybe there's someone here listening, watching, sitting here who has never prayed that. Maybe God has brought you to the edge of yourself in your sorrow and your despair and your hopelessness where you realize that the only hope is that the Lord saves you. Maybe you're on the other end of that. Maybe you think that you have it all together, that your life needs no saving and you need to understand that God's standard isn't that you're better than the next guy, but God's standard is perfection. That sin has broken that relationship. That sin has made it impossible for us to bridge that gap, to reconcile that relationship. And it is only through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross that we can be saved. That is the prayer. Lord, save me. And then the comfort of knowing that he doesn't cast out any who come to him in faith. To everyone who cries out, he saves. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people in need of rescue. Sometimes we need rescue from crisis, whatever that crisis happens to be. And we're brought to the end of ourselves and we cry out, Lord, save us. But beyond that, we are a people who desperately need saving from our own sin. You created us, you formed us in our mother's wombs. 
and yet we turned against you. As a people and as individuals, we pursued ourselves rather than relationship with you. We pursued self rather than obedience. And sin kills and sin separates. But you save. Lord, I pray that there might be someone listening who responds to that gospel. That gospel that says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that you'll be saved. Lord, make us a people who preach to a dying world, a world sinking in their own sin, perishing with the eternal consequence to their failure to believe. Lord, make us a people and call people to be saved. And may we be blessed by seeing people repent and come into that kingdom. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that makes these things clear to us. As we go through this week, help us to apply it rightly. In Christ's name, amen.